you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be in Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9 this afternoon. We'll take a break from Ephesians for about three weeks. Well, not about three weeks, for three weeks. Um, and then, Lord willing, we'll be back uh, in Ephesians um, in the end of October here, and probably about three more sermons before we finish this, this series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've come here in this passage to the, the third and the final set of instructions in Paul's household code that we find uh, in Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9. And we, we've seen that each of these instructions are actually a specific application of, of verse 21 of chapter 5 for followers of Jesus to submit to one another in humility and love. And also even further back that that submission to one another is actually a fruit of the Spirit a fruit of the Spirit's filling from chapter 5, verse 18. There's this chain that's happening. As we're filled with the Spirit, we submit to one another out of love and in humility, and that works itself out in these different relationships. And Paul has talked about these different roles within the home. Uh, he speaks in, in these uh, instructions to both those that are given authority and also those that are called to submit and to obey that authority. Uh, so far, we've, we've seen the uniquely Christian way that husbands and wives and then parents and children are to relate to one another. And now we come to a third relationship within a first century household, and we might even say a first century family, which is that of masters and slaves. And while this may feel like something that's very far from us, as we study these instructions, my hope is that we're going to discover a truth that actually can be applied in our everyday lives, and it's this. A spirit-filled follower of Jesus submits to authority as to the Lord and uses authority with the heart of the Lord. That's our big idea, and I'll say it at least one more time. A spirit-filled follower of Jesus submits to authority as to the Lord and uses authority with the heart of the Lord. One more time, a spirit-filled follower of Jesus submits to authority as to the Lord and uses authority with the heart of the Lord. Each of us, in various ways, holds to some kind of authority and submits to other kinds of authority. And what we find here is that being a follower of Jesus influences how we do both. We submit to authority as to the Lord, and we use our authority with the heart of the Lord. As we go through this, this passage, we're going to begin with a, a general question about the passage as a whole, and then we're going to move into the, the specific study and application of these words. But I think it's going to be best to begin by reading the passage. So Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read verses 5 through 9. This is what God's Word says. Bond servants, or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. 
Now, the question, the general question that we face right at the beginning of this instruction is this. I'm just going to state it right out front. Why does Paul give instructions to slaves and masters regarding how they should live with one another instead of simply condemning slavery as sinful and wrong? Now, that may not be the first place that your mind goes when you read these verses, but I imagine that we're all eventually going to get to that question in our study of them. And so we need to wrestle with that question. Why does Paul give instructions to slaves and masters instead of just saying slavery is wrong? Before we get into the reasons for Paul's apparent silence on the sinfulness of slavery, I think that we should acknowledge that this question has not always been theoretical or hypothetical for people throughout the centuries. The reality is that, that these words have most certainly been used to justify the ownership of other human beings. And even to this day, the, the sting of this passage is still strong for some of the ancestors of slaves. Its words cause sorrow and anger. Just to read those first words, slaves obey your masters. That is stinging to many people uh, in our culture and beyond. So we should remember this. We should remember that it's, it was less than 160 years ago, which is not that long ago, less than 160 years ago when slavery was finally outlawed in our country. With many of those effects of race-based slavery extended on, extending on into the civil rights movement of just 80 years ago and undeniably into the present day. And running through all of this history, scriptures like this one in Ephesians 6 have been used to claim the superiority of one race over another or to think about the acceptability of slavery. And so we need to be honest about the pain that this passage has wrongly, uh, that this passage when wrongly applied has, has caused within our world. And so as we begin with this question of why Paul didn't simply condemn the practice of slavery, let's first say that the point of this passage is not to approve of slavery. This passage does not approve of slavery. I think we should state that right at the beginning. If we're asking why doesn't Paul condemn it, well, let's just say this. This passage is not an approval of slavery. In other words, Paul's focus is not to comment on the rightness or the wrongness of the practice of slavery here. Rather, he's instructing his readers regarding how to live as Christians within a system that was a very present reality in their world. We might think of it like the instructions for obeying the governing authority and their authorities, and there Paul doesn't comment on whether or not a particular government is right or wrong. Rather, he lays down principles for how the Christian is to live within a system that could in fact be very unrighteous and even hostile to Christianity. This flows into a second thought to think through as we try to understand why Paul doesn't condemn slavery outright, and that's this, that it, it has to do with the nature of slavery in the first century. Let's think about the nature of slavery within the first century, because again, that's who Paul's writing to. We're, we're trying to put ourselves into the sandals of the people to whom Paul was writing to nearly 2,000 years ago, which is no easy task, <laughs> and it's, it's not one that we're going to accomplish this afternoon or probably ever but we can take some steps hopefully in that direction. As we think about the nature of slavery in the first century, I think we should begin with the more general fact that for most of us, not only is the idea of masters and servants unfamiliar to our everyday lives, but so is the thought of any kind of paid help 
within our homes. At least it is for me. I'm not sure if anyone else has paid help within their home. Maybe you do. But when I visit the, the Philippines and, and people find out that Andrew and I have seven children, uh, they often assume that we employ someone who comes to our house somewhat regularly and helps with the running of our, our household. I wish, right, Andrew? Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, however, here in the U.S., that kind of help is not financially uh, attainable for most of us. Uh, and we may even be, be a bit averse to the idea of having someone come into our house and, and help. So I'm not saying in any way that, that the in-home help of the Philippines or of any other country is akin to slavery. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. But I just want us to see that, that we're very unfamiliar with this idea in general of employing someone within our, our homes. But the reality is that, that throughout history, not to mention in many nations today, companies and, and businesses were not the only entities that employed other people, or maybe even the primary ones, which means that having authority over another human being or being under the authority of an individual has been a much more common human experience for many, many people throughout history. This was certainly true in Paul's day. Some say that the Roman Empire had at one, at one time that there were 60 million slaves. And some people estimate that more than one third of the population of Ephesus was slaves. One third of the population of Ephesus. For better or for worse, the system of masters and slaves was just a fact of life. It was not seen as a problem to be solved, but simply a part of the economic and social system. Now, just because something is widely accepted doesn't make it right. However, understanding in some small way the, the social and economic realities of, of slavery in the first century may, may help us understand why Paul instructs his readers on how to live as Christians within this system rather than instructing them on how to overthrow something that was so deeply embedded in the way of life that he, of those that he was writing to. Now, as we consider the, the nature of slavery in the first century, we should also be careful not to infuse it with the particular evils of race-based slavery here in the United States. It's undeniable that slave masters in all cultures and all historical moments often abused their power, whether through physical abuse or other kinds of abuse or simply humiliation. We're not trying to to take slavery and make it something that was just a part of life and that it was okay. Certainly, evils were done. And the slaves in Ephesus were no exception. But as one article that I read stated it somewhat crassly, unlike the United States, the Romans were equal opportunity enslavers, with many of their slaves being acquired through war and the conquering of other nations and, and territories. What American history does is join the evil of slavery with the evil of racism, which led not only to the subjugation of a specific group of people based on their ethnicity, but also to the pilfering of Africa's strength and youth and the devaluing of people made in God's image based purely on the color of their skin or their ethnicity. This was not the case in Ephesus, as far as we can tell. So as we enter into this passage, we're trying to to figure some things out. We're trying to hold in our minds the nature of slavery in the first century so that we can understand who Paul was writing to. 
while also recognizing that Paul's words are not an approval of slavery. And in fact, we might find that while this passage does not call for the ending of slavery, this passage paves the way for the abolishing of slavery. That's the third thing I want to say as we think about it. This passage paves the way for the abolishing of slavery. To use this passage to justify slavery is, a, is certainly a misinterpretation of it because, in fact, it would seem more true to, to the text to use it as an argument against slavery. The radical nature of, of Paul's instructions to slaves and masters helps us see not only the way that, that Christian masters and slaves were to act, but it also begins to pull bricks out of the foundation of the practice of slavery in general. In trying to see this, we could begin by considering the fact that Paul is addressing both slaves and masters within this letter, which means what? It means that slaves and masters were members of the congregation in Ephesus. They were both there together. Remember, we talked about how it may have been surprising when Paul addressed the children and said, children, obey your parents. Oh, he's giving instruction to the children. How maybe even more surprising that he's giving instruction to the slaves. They were there together as the letter was read aloud, sitting as equal brothers and sisters in Christ. In addition to what he writes here, Paul could also have easily said what he says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And that meant, according to Galatians 3 and Colossians 3, that in Christ there is no slave or free. What a radical statement in the first century. In Christ there is no slave or free. Paul himself, in the book of Philemon that, that Joshua explained so beautifully for us and read for us, he seems to encourage the Christian slave over owner Philemon to possibly set free his Christian slave, Onesimus. And thus Paul becomes the first in a long line of Christian abolitionists who, who saw in the gospel not a reason to continue to enslave humans, but a call to fight for the ending of slavery in particular, and in particular, and of all devaluing of human beings in general. So while we should, we should grieve the way that scriptures have been twisted throughout the years in order to justify slavery, we should also, also thank God for, for Christian abolitionists who God used to demolish the sinful practice of slavery here in our nation and around the world and throughout human history. And can I also say what a unique testimony to the power of the gospel that African Americans and former slaves within our country were empowered by God to to hold to the same Christian faith that their masters did while also boldly fighting against the sins that were committed against them. In this book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin Uh, writes about this in a chapter titled, Isn't Christianity Against Diversity? (laughs) This is what she says. Just some interesting testimonies. The 2019 film Harriet tells the story of Harriet Tubman, who escaped slavery herself and went on to help hundreds of others escape. She was nicknamed Moses after the man who who led God's people out of slavery in the biblical book of Exodus. Like Moses, she was trusting God to guide her as she did the dangerous work of helping people escape slavery. And like many of the leading black abolitionists, Harriet Tubman saw her faith in Jesus as the most important thing in her life. 
when Frederick Douglass, another leading anti-slavery campaigner, came, became a Christian at age 13, age 13, he remembered how God changed his heart like this. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. Likewise, a woman named Sojourner Truth traveled around speaking against the slavery that she herself had previously endured. She said she always had one text, quote, when I found Jesus. What an amazing testimony to the power of the gospel in, these, in, in, in the lives of these individuals. Now, none of that means that we can just dust off our hands and say that the history of Christianity and slavery is a simple one, because it is, it is not. We need to acknowledge the sinful practices that were done in the name of Jesus almost and have honest conversations about where we are and, and where we were. But we can be confident of this. I think we can be confident that God's word is going to point us to what is right and true. It's going to point us to, to truth about this issue. And we can also be confident, I think, that, that God's word is profitable for us today to teach and rebuke and correct and instruct us. And so as we more formally enter into this passage, we want to understand just what it's saying to us. Now, the temptation often is to apply Paul's instructions directly to the workplace. And we can certainly see principles that, that may be applied to our jobs. However, being an employee or an employer is much different than being a slave or a master, right? At least I would hope so. <laughs> and yet, while, while none of us are in the position of a slave or of a master, we have a lot that we can learn from this passage as uh, we find out that a spirit-filled follower of Jesus submits to authority as to the Lord and uses authority with the heart of the Lord. So notice first in verses five through eight that all obedience to authority should be done as to the Lord. All obedience to authority should be done as to the Lord. Simply put, for, for the slave in Paul's time, who was also a Christian, it was that individual's position in Christ that was to shape how he or she served his or her master. That's the main thrust of this passage, I think. And it's repeated in various ways. You notice this in verse 5. The slaves were told to obey as they would Christ. Verse 6, they were to be bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, their service was to be as to the Lord. As Paul speaks of obedience to human masters, he's reminding bondservants of what he says of himself, that the follower of Jesus is ultimately a slave of Christ. That Jesus is their true Lord and master and all of their obedience and submission to an earthly human master could actually be done as to their heavenly Lord. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 that whether we eat or, or drink or whatever we do, we can do it all to the glory of God. And he's saying here that the slave can obey to the glory of God. So what does that look like? What does it look like to obey an authority as we would Christ or as to the Lord? Well, Paul gives a, a number of things to, to do and to not do, some attitudes to have and some to avoid. Again, we get this flavor of the, the put off and the, the put on that Paul talks of often here in Ephesians. So first, to obey as to the Lord means we obey with reverence for Christ. 
We obey with reverence for Christ. He uses these words, fear and trembling. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, which surely was a part of the life of a slave. Their lives were held in the hands of their masters, and any mistake or failure could have had a deep, life-altering impact on them. But I don't think, actually, that Paul is talking about fear of their earthly masters. I think he's talking about fear of God, of reverence for Christ. They are to see themselves as serving the Lord, and therefore they are to live with his presence before their eyes. In fact, I think we begin to see in this passage that the power of the master over the slave just sort of fades to the, to the background, and the power of God over the Christian starts to come to the forefront. They no longer need to, in fact, live in fear of their master, even if he could harm them, even if he could take their life. They could really, truly understand Jesus' command to, to not fear the one who can kill the body but do nothing to the soul, but rather to fear the one who not only controls our physical life, but also our eternal, the eternal state of our souls. In all circumstances, no matter who claims authority over us, we live our lives ultimately before the Lord. We live in reverential fear and awe of God, and so we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 118.16, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As I think about this living with, with a reverential fear and awe of, of God, uh, characters from the Old Testament come to my mind, characters like Joseph or like Daniel. These were men who were slaves, who were under the authority of others, but they lived their lives ultimately before the Lord, fearing and serving God first as they served others. So we obey with fear and trembling before God. Secondly, we obey with sincerity. With sincerity. The servant's obedience was to be honest and genuine. They're not supposed to smile and nod to their master's face and then roll their eyes when his back was turned or gossip and tear down their master with their fellow workers. Uh, nor were they uh, to serve simply for their own advancement. Uh, again, such sincerity could only be found and maintained if their service was seen as to the Lord. No doubt they would have become frustrated or angry or bitter with their master if they were simply seeking to serve him or her. But if they're serving the Lord, well, if they're serving the Lord, then then they, could be consistent, they can consistently be sincere and genuine in their desire for the good of the one that's being served. And such is with any authority. If we're serving the Lord, we can do so with sincerity to anyone, no matter who they are. I think verse 7 clarifies what's meant by sincerity also. It helps us to see that we're to obey, not to be seen by others, but from the heart. We obey not to be seen by others, but, but from our heart. So, so we obey... Not for show, but, but from the heart. And I think this is probably easy for us to relate to. How often have our hearts been grumbling while our faces smiled and we completed a task for another person? Our motivations were not pure. Rather, we just didn't want to look like we were rebelling. We didn't want to appear sinful or selfish. But Paul says that if we obey others as an obedience to Christ, then we can do it not for show, 
but truly from our hearts, filled with a love for Jesus and a love for others. In a parallel passage on slaves and masters, Paul says this in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily. Why? As for the Lord and not for men. And anyone who's over authority over us, if they're asking us to do something, we can work heartily, even if we are not working fully for them because we know that we are working for the Lord. And even as we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21, we can and, and we should do so not to be seen by others, but to see, be seen by our Heavenly Father. People in this world can frustrate us because they're sinful. But if we're, if we're seeking to serve the Lord first and foremost in our service to others, we will find that he is always worthy of our best efforts and our hearts can be fully engaged in good deeds done to others. We can serve others with sincerity as we serve him with sincerity because we sincerely love Christ. Well, finally, obeying authorities as to the Lord means we do so with good will. With good will. This is the final way a servant was called to obey, which seems to indicate a, a genuine desire for the well-being of their master. They serve not silently, hoping and wishing for their master's demise, but actually for his prospering. Now, I, I think we should say at this point uh, that in all of this, that none of these commands preclude a desire on the part of the slave to be free. Uh, nor do I think that we should use this passage to condemn the efforts of enslaved persons throughout history to be freed. There's space within the teaching of Scripture for a servant to obey his or her master and also to seek the justice that is found in his or her freedom from oppression. But with that said, I think we should also think about how a Christian slave would stand out in a household by listening to Paul's instructions. Can you imagine? They would be the fragrance of Christ and the gospel, not only to their master, but also to their fellow servants. And just think, too, about how we can stand out in this world if we have a similar attitude, not, not simply to those in authority over us, but to anyone that we would willingly and voluntarily serve in the name of Jesus. What if we did everything that we do as to the Lord and as service to Christ, in, in the fear of the Lord, with, with sincerity, seeking the goodwill of others. If we do that, we'll shine like a city on a hill. And all of this will we'll show forth the character of Christ, will show the heart of the gospel, the heart of a Savior who did not come to be served, but to serve, of a Redeemer who took on the form of a servant and obeyed all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 8, we find that Paul is actually driving towards a promise that is behind all of these instructions. Look at verse eight. Knowing, we're, we're knowing something as we're doing, as the slave is knowing something as he or she is doing all this. And as we obey authority, we know something. What do we know? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So we, we serve others, including those in authority over us, as a service to the Lord, knowing that our God is a good master and knowing this, that any good the child of God does will not be forgotten. What a promise. Any good, any good that the child of God does will not be forgotten. 
I can't imagine the life of a slave. You can imagine their, their duties were often unnoticed or forgotten. Jesus himself talks about this reality in Luke 17, uh, 7 through 10. This is what he says. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It's a deep truth about who we are, that Christ is our Lord and Master. And yet the reality is that God is also our our Father and our friend. And while any good that we do is, is from him and simply our duty to him, he also says that none of it will ever be forgotten. This principle obviously extends beyond the relationship between a slave and a master. We can know as, as Bauer writes it, he says, quote, all who are in submission to proper authorities know that they and their selfless service, no matter how menial it appears in the world, are not ignored or forgotten by the Lord. End quote. In fact, any humble submission, any act of love done for another person is seen by God and will be given back to us in blessing. If we go back through this passage, we could say this is true for husbands and wives who live lives of selfless self-giving towards one another. Whether or not your spouse sees it, the Lord sees it. This is true of parents and, and children. Children, When you obey your parents, and when you obey your parents, even when they don't see you, even when they're not looking, God sees it, and he knows, and he will not forget it. Parents, when when you cherish your children, when you lay down your life for your child, even if they have no clue how much of your time and your mental energy and your physical energy is sacrificed for their good, God in heaven sees it and he knows it. In your home, at your workplace, in traffic when you just let someone in, at the grocery store, in your online interactions, in the church, everywhere, when we humbly give of ourselves as to the Lord, he sees it and he will never forget it. After these instructions to slaves, Paul moves on to speak to masters. And in verse 9, we find this. All use of authority should be done with the heart of the Lord. All use of authority should be done with the heart of the Lord. So we see that all obedience to authority should be done as to the Lord. And now, as we move to those with authority, all use of authority should be done with the heart of the Lord. Paul's instructions to masters begins kind of curiously, I think. It says that they should do the same. Masters, do the same to them. Well, I don't think he means that they should obey their servants. Uh, Rather, it probably refers back to, uh, to treating others with goodwill, which I think we can summarize with the idea of respecting others and, and seeking their good whether we are, whether um, we're in a position of authority or, or not. So to, to use any authority we have with the heart of the Lord means 
respect others and seek their good. I think that's what he's saying. Respect others and seek their good. John Stott explains the command to do the same like this. This is what he says. That is, if you hope to receive respect, show it. If you hope to receive service, give it. It is an application of the golden rule. However masters hope their slaves will behave towards them, they must behave towards their slaves in the same way. Paul admits no privileged superiority in the masters as if they could themselves dispense with the very courtesies they expect to be shown. Once again, Paul is is pushing against our natural tendency to use power and authority to hurt and harm others. In God's kingdom, authority is never an opportunity to hurt others, but rather it's an opportunity to bless them and to seek their best interests. And so he also says that authority wielded with the heart of the Lord means don't threaten. Don't threaten is the clear command there. Masters do the same and stop your threatening. What a command from Paul. The prevailing thought of the day was surely to keep slaves in line through threats and through cruelty. You can read historically of instances where slaves revolted against their masters, sometimes even killing their masters. And so the masters would respond with threats and with harshness. But Paul says that's not the way of Christ. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And he is filled with patience and grace towards us. And so too, the Christian master was to apply the ways of Jesus to how he treated his slaves. And that meant no harsh threatening. I think sometimes we're tempted to think that walking in love and serving others applies to most situations, but there's exceptions. Maybe in the workplace or on the road or if you're in line at the DMV, any number of places. These, these are spots where you, just a little bit of nastiness, a few sharp elbows, that that goes a long way for you to getting what you want in some sort of a timely fashion. Isn't it interesting that Paul makes no exceptions? Even in the case of a master and a slave, he says, don't threaten, but walk in love. The self-giving love of Jesus is to be applied to every situation. And masters were not to threaten slaves, but in a unique way to serve them. How much more for us in every circumstance that we find ourselves in, that we are to respect others, seek their good, and not threaten them, especially if we're in some sort of a place of authority. Regarding the instructions given to slaves, Paul took us into the mind of God and into eternity when he talks about the fact that no good deed will be forgotten. And, and here he, he takes masters into the mind and the heart of God as well, reminding them and, and motivating, when, motivating them with the truth that God shows no partiality. You notice how the text is sort of parallel. In verse 8, it's knowing that whatever good anyone does, etc. And then in, in verse 9, Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the motivation. This is the root for why the masters would act this way. In the eyes of the Lord, a slave and his master were equally his children. Therefore, a master was not to look down on his slave, 
but he was to recognize that he was ultimately a servant of God, that the master was a servant of God, and that God is in fact the master of all people, especially of Christians. Now, these commands for masters and, and this truth that God shows no partiality, again, I think if we read this with eyes open, we start to see that this is paving the way for the church to seek the abolishment of slavery. And any efforts on, on, on the part of slaves to seek their freedom were just a call for, for masters to acknowledge the reality of the equality that's spelled out here. As Paul applies the gospel to this particular relationship, we start to see the truth of this equality that, that every person is created in the image of God and deserves the opportunity to live and to serve God because in, in his eyes there is no slave or free. And in fact, what goes even deeper here than, than this reality of equality is the truth that Christian slaves and masters were a part of the family of God. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. This again is what the letter to Philemon brings out as Paul tells Philemon to receive his slave Onesimus back, it says in verse 16 of that letter, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The final portion of the household code here in Ephesians brings home the, this fact that our position in Christ changes everything about us. If you are a Christian, it changes everything about you. It changes how all of your relationships function in this world. The way that a Christian relates within his or her home and in all these other relationships should be completely different from that of the world because Jesus changes everything about us. Now, let's remember, we could never do this on our own. We could never walk in these ways of selfless self-giving on our own. And the gospel, in fact, calls us to admit our sinfulness and to find in Jesus forgiveness and to find true righteousness in him that he alone can give us. But then, as, as we are redeemed in Christ, he changes us. He changes us more and more into his image. And if we're living in the fullness of the spirit of 518, we will walk in a completely different way. We'll walk in the ways of Jesus. As we look back over this code, you know what? I, I found something interesting. As I, you look at husbands and wives, as you look at parents and children, as you look at masters and slaves, do you know who the perfect example is for each of those relationships? Jesus. <laughs> How can Jesus be the perfect example for husbands and wives, for children and parents, for masters and slaves? He is. He's the perfect example in every relationship. He teaches us how to respond, whether we have authority or whether we're called to submit to and obey authority. And not only is he the example, but he enables us to do it as to him. God in Christ, by his spirit, empowers us to submit and obey and selflessly serve one another, whatever role that we are given in our homes or in society or at large. And we can do all of this as to Christ and for God's glory. May he help us to do just that. Let's take a moment of silence and we'll reflect on God's word and then I will pray.
Father, we are once again filled with gratitude for Jesus, that he has saved our souls and transformed our lives, that he's shown us how to walk in all of these ways. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to live lives of selfless self-giving? Would you help us to know how to how to submit to and obey the authorities in our lives, but also how to use the authority that we have, that we would see each of these things as opportunities not for our own personal advancement or as a way to accomplish our own wills, but as a way to glorify you, that we could do all of these things as to you. Jesus, you've transformed us, you've forgiven us, You've changed our entire lives. Help us not to to neglect your Spirit's power in us that's seeking to make us more into your image so that we can shine as lights in this dark world. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.